Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 165. In this episode, we're talking about crippled grace and virtue ethics with Dr. Shane Clifton. Dr. Shane Clifton is a disability ethicist and theologian, and he's presently Principal Policy Officer and Director of Respect and Inclusion at the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect, and Exploitation Against People with Disability. And he's an Honorary Associate for the Center of Disability Research and Policy at the University of Sydney. He's also the author of Crippled Grace, Disability, Virtue Ethics, and the Good Life, published by Baylor University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie Kate Judd and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. In this conversation with Dr. Clifton, we talk about virtue ethics and what does it mean to live a good life, eudaimonia, and specifically, what does it mean to live a good life when one has experienced a severe spinal cord injury? And this conversation was just really powerful and, and really illuminating and really, really enjoyed what Dr. Clifton had to share with us. Steph, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Clifton? This conversation with Shane was really raw, and I think it's good that it was. I'm really grateful to Shane for sharing so vulnerably about his experience with a disability, his experience um, with his faith and and what that has what that has meant for him. I think that's a really important thing to acknowledge that you don't just respond to disability once. It's not static. It changes over time. And it's really important to acknowledge that. Um, in terms of his work on, on virtue, during the pandemic, there's been a bit of a resurgence in interest in the virtue tradition. And I think it was really interesting to hear from him what are the ways that the Christian tradition has interacted with virtue ethics. Also, what are some of the shortcomings of both of those treatments of disability um, in terms of how you think about what the good life is um, what are some of the assumptions that are baked into them that have an ambivalent relationship to disability as Shane as Shane describes it this for me was an important exercise in really listening and hearing um, from from people who have different experiences of disability um, and I think that our, yeah, our conversation around pain and pleasure was really interesting if you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Shane Clifton. Well, Dr. Clifton, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Please call me Shane. It might be an Aussie thing, but uh, first name basis, please. It's definitely an Aussie thing and I feel vindicated. Thanks, Shane. <laughs> well, happy to call you Shane. I definitely struggle with deference and I, I do I do prefer to use titles, but we'll go with Shane. That's that's quite all right. But we're really well, excited. I think, I think disability is all about getting rid of deference as well, to be honest. So mm -hmm. the very topic we're talking about um, might challenge some of those power structures that are inbuilt in so much of society. Sorry to interrupt your inter your introduction. No, don't don't apologize at all. I very much appreciate that point, and it is one that I have thought about quite a bit. I think 
you know, part of it for me too, is thinking about, you know, issues of uh, sexism. I think that's probably one of the things in the back of my mind often is, you know, wanting, wanting to uh, respect titles of, out of, out of deference to people and, and specifically wanting to um, honor people whose titles often aren't recognized. So I, I, I agree. There's, there's been movements to put the doctor against um, people against women's um, Twitter feed. And that is true of disability. So maybe I should be taking the doctor, not for myself, but for the fact that people with disability can have that nomenclature too. Mm, so. mm. Well, that's a great point. And I, I appreciate, I appreciate this. This is great. I will call you Shane as, as you request, but um, thank, you. thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And we're really excited to talk about your, your book, uh, Crippled Grace, Disability, Virtue Ethics and the Good Life. Um, but before we dive into that book and, and your thesis and kind of, you know, some of the disability ethics that you uh, articulate in that, in that text, we'd love to hear a little bit about, about your story, if you'd like to share with us. Yeah, certainly. Goodness, I'm um, 52 years old. So stories are, um, how do you encapsulate a story when you're that ancient so quickly? Uh, look, I um, was, I live in Sydney, raised on the South Coast, really beautiful um, part of this country. I was a surfer and uh, I was raised really non-Christian. I became a Christian at about 16 years old. Um, saved into a Pentecostal church, stayed there, I think. Uh, I got, I fell in love with a girl, that helps, doesn't it? Um, so I married my um, childhood sweetheart at 19 um, and we moved to Sydney. Uh, we were, I was an accountant for a while and then felt uh, God called me to uh, Bible college. I went to uh, college in Sydney and spent really the next couple of decades studying and then teaching theology and ethics, uh, which was a really wonderful profession. It's a really great privilege, I think, to talk about life uh, and its meanings with uh, young people. And it's a very rich and enjoyable profession. In um, 2010, I had a spinal cord injury so I broke my um, fifth and my fourth and fifth vertebrae riding push bikes with my then teenage children so that left me with quadriplegia and I dealt with well it's so that was 2010 so we're talking 12 years ago um, so I had to adjust to this really life-changing devastating injury um, it takes a long time to adjust to a spinal cord injury and you use different techniques to adjust to it. Um, and one of those was writing. And so I've really, um, so I guess I turned my academic skills uh, over to study my own disability and uh, then to study disability more broadly. And it's turned out to be a really rich vein of thought and reflection, one that you know, you wouldn't plan for, you'd um, do everything you can to avoid. But uh, I feel really privileged to have had the opportunity to study and reflect on and meet with uh, people with disability. And it's really directed my career. So uh, my theology career for um, complex reasons really relate to uh, 
fact that I'm pro-gay, LGBT. I um, um, my theological career in um, I guess conservative Christianity came to an end in 2016 or actually 2018. And I was associated with the University of Sydney and their Centre for Disability Research and Policy. Uh, so I worked for them for a while and uh, since then have worked for the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability in Australia. And I gather you're American, John, and this is a broad audience. A Royal Commission is just uh, Australia, who knows why, is a colonial country where we still come under the now king of England, it's absurd. Um, so when they have national inquiries, it's a royal inquiry. And so um, Australia, uh, quite a few years ago now, it's uh, I think 2019, set up an investigation into the violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation that people with disability uh, suffer throughout the course of their life. And um, yeah, which sort of, which sort of comes after the book. It's not really topics we explore in the book. So there's so much you learn in life after you write a book. It's quite interesting coming back to a book this far later. So that's a really brief overview of my story. There may be bits of it that you've got specific questions and you can ask me more about, but I think that's probably enough to get us started. Thanks so much, Shane. And I think that one of the one of the interesting little little components that you share in your book is the fact that you happened to be reading a book by Alistair McIntyre at the time that you had your accident. Can you share a little bit about, about that and the impact that McIntyre's work has had in shaping your interest in, in the virtue tradition? Yeah, look, um, I was, uh, as I said, raised Pentecostal, but my postgraduate studies were with, they were fairly ecumenical and they were with Catholicism, uh, the Australian Catholic University. Um, which really introduced me to the virtue tradition, um, which is a really rich tradition. Um, and uh, it has its origins in Aristotle. It becomes significant in the work of Thomas Aquinas. And it's really central to Catholic, both theology and ethics. And the virtue tradition is, you think it's about ethics, about virtue, but in Aristotle, and then also I think in Aquinas and others, it's really the study of the good life. Um, it's a study of what is the good life, what's happiness actually, interestingly enough, which is, um, you know, what do we mean by happiness and how do we attain it is I think maybe a really good summary of the virtue tradition. And I was reading Alastair McIntyre, who I think really is probably the best known 20th century interpreter of the virtue tradition. His work is so rich and interesting. Um, and I was reading a book called Dependent Rational Animals, which is in some ways a difficult book. And he was using, um, he was, it was his attempt to do disability, um, dependency really, dependency and the study of disability and combine it with virtue ethics. And to be frank, it's a pretty terrible book on disability um, because he actually doesn't know much about it. Um, it's a really fascinating book on dolphins. Um, and so he uses dolphins as an analogy. But anyway, all of this to say, I was halfway through this book and I broke my neck, which is sort of ironic, isn't it? 
to be reading a book on disability and you break your neck right in the middle of it. Um, is that providential? Uh, I'm not sure what to make of providence, but um, so I took the book back up uh, actually in hospital when I was trying to adjust to my spinal cord injury. And that then really got me thinking about, you know, I was dealing with loss and grief and I was desperately unhappy. Um, and I really struggled with unhappiness for, you know, you, you, you spend, I don't know, um, I spent eight or seven months or something in hospital. So I think from October 2010 to the middle of 2011, trying to adjust to this injury, you you have this, in, your, in hospital, you imagine, um, you know, you imagine you're going to get out of hospitals, horrible places, terrible food, just bureaucratic environments. You're stuck at the whims of others. And so you're desperate, you're working hard to recover and get out of hospital. And then you go home, life's really complex, and you discover you haven't gone back to the same life that you were living before. And so I really dug deep into, well, how can I um, know happiness with this new life that um, is, yeah, I'm just dealing with so much loss. So the, the Virtue Tradition and Alastair McIntyre, um, I guess, became a key platform for me to be able to explore happiness. When the Virtue Tradition talks about happiness or eudaimonia, what, what does it mean? Like what, what are the particular kind of, what, what's that landscape conceptually? Yeah, look, I, it is a word that we use in so many different ways, isn't it? And I think when we today think of happiness, we tend to think of it as a short-term emotion. Um, and so often when people are thinking about the good life, they say we're not talking about happiness. Um we're talking about something more long-term. And I think that is true of the virtue tradition. It takes a long-term view of happiness. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, its definition of happiness is something that's not blown about by the winds of emotion or the immediate circumstances. It's, it's a long-term vision, a long-term goal. I think in McIntyre and the virtue tradition, it's an end trajectory. It's something you actually can't know. You can't know whether you've lived happy life sort of earlier in the middle of it you know retrospectively when you look back and you make a judgment wow through all of these absurd ups and downs life's actually been okay i can i can make a judgment that i've lived a happy life so uh, and that's why it does happiness is also then connected to virtue because the um, the happy life or the good life there is, it's, it's not just the one that's had positive emotions, but you can look back on it and say, I feel like I lived it well or virtuously. So virtues are interesting for happiness because they enable you to achieve it. And we can talk a bit more about that later, but also um, the way in which you live your life will generally be part of the the judgments you make about whether it was good or happy. Um, so, yeah, it tends to be more focused on that longer-term trajectory. Um, and some of the critiques of the virtue tradition um, and, I guess, Christianity as a whole that I might own a little bit more now is um, 
it can dismiss um, pleasure too quickly if we're not careful. And I've, um, I guess, in, in if I was writing this book again, one of the things I'd like to spend a lot more time on is the place of pleasure and living in the moment. And um, and I think that does contribute to a long good life as well. So I, I wouldn't want to set, um, you know, the, this the notion of eudaimonia against joy or pleasure because um, I think that's part of it. So it's it's broadening though, um, I guess, a, a more modern conception of what we mean by happiness. As you talk about that and how you might do things differently and explore the topic of pleasure uh, in some in some new ways, can you tell us a little bit about how you approach it in your book and what you would like to sort of uh, extend with with what you've done or perhaps uh, supplement or replace with what you've done? Yeah, look, um, so interesting coming back to a book that you wrote almost 10 years ago, thinking, what did I say then? Um, but um, I think, look, the primary, one of the things that I did in the book is I brought together a few different traditions. Um, so I used um, the virtue tradition. I brought it together with um, a sort of more modern study of science called positive psychology that does draw on the virtue tradition um, in some pretty shallow ways, to be frank. Um, I'm, I think, you know, um, I'm not a complete embracer of the virtue of uh, positive psychology. I think I'm relatively critical of it in the book. I feel like um, it, the attempt to study science empirically, which positive psychology tries to do, um, the attempt to study virtue empirically is, I think, you know, a little flawed in its very attempt. But at least, at least it says there's some empirical or there's some statistical basis for supporting the insight that virtue contributes to happiness. But the, 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 um, the positive psychology posits three levels of happiness um, and the, the bottom or the sort of base level of happiness it defines as pleasure. Um, and so for me, one of the really interesting, and then the next level of happiness, it talks about flow or just being in the moment. Um, with, with positive psychology, that level of happiness they say it's not pleasure that you know you're experiencing this the sort of high you might get from alcohol or taking drugs, but um, it's that that deep pleasure you get from investing yourself in an activity where you might be feeling pain um, or hardship. So uh, I think an example that might be used is you know um, rock climbing. You're working hard, your hands and feet might be really painful. Um, your arms might be about to fall off, but there's this really deep pleasure you get from this, um, from investing yourself in an activity and hopefully succeeding in it. So that's what they call this second level of pleasure. And then that third level of pleasure is the sort of the life well lived, that longer term goal, um, which I think is probably closer to the traditional meaning of or what is often sort of focused with eudaimonia. Um, so yeah, and it's that if that first level of pleasure that I'd spend more time with, um, and probably be much more critical of Christianity and theology about it. I think um, uh, I'm. Am I still a Christian post um, post some of the experiences I had in the you know the 2018s more recently? Um, uh, and one of my strong critiques of 
Christianity is that it can often be an anti-pleasure movement. Um, and I think that can be true of the virtue tradition at times as well. Um, so uh, I've really had to think carefully about pleasure. And I, I guess I should step back and say spinal cord injury um, confronts you with the loss of pleasure. So when I had my injury uh, prior to it, I was a surfer and golfer, um, married for whatever number of years I was then. And you have a spinal cord injury. And so I, I've got quadriplegia. Now that means different things. There's different levels of quadriplegia, but I've essentially lost movement and function from sort of the chest down. So I've got biceps and um, I've got some hand, I've had some recovery. So it's a weird disease, spinal cord injury. Can't really talk about too much detail now, but I certainly lost, I was unable to do many of the things I found pleasure in. So, you know, I could no longer surf. It affected um, my sexual function. So um, could no longer get a natural erection or orgasm um, that has an impact on sexual relationship uh, with your partner. Um, you know, just my ability to be able to play with my kids. And so I think one of the reasons spinal cord injury and happiness became such a big topic for me was how do I regain happiness in the loss of all of these things? Now, in the first instance, the notion of eudaimonia helped me there because I realised that I can still live this broader vision of the good life without um, focusing on those uh, that that pleasure so much. So, you know, I was able to reinvest myself in my career um, and able to teach students, and I, you know, was able to work out how to be a parent again and um, and invest myself in deep relationships. All of those components of the good life, you know, they're about living for meaning and they're about investing yourself in deep relationships. And and I could do all that with a spinal cord injury. Um, and so that was the, the, the virtue tradition really helped me there. But um, both that and Christianity hadn't helped me think enough about pleasure. And, uh, and so um, interestingly enough, the queer community um, is just really a great community, actually in terms of relationships and acceptance, but also in terms of celebrating pleasure and recognising that life is meant to be fun and joyous and crazy and weird and wonderful. And, uh, and so, yeah, one of the real challenges for me in recent years is how do I re-embrace pleasure? You know, I've, I've done that in multiple ways. I've managed to find some sports and, um, you know, I've been able to enjoy things that were taboo prior to my injury. So getting drunk and loving the fun that I'll have with my mates when I'm drunk or taking magic mushrooms, all of those things that I was unable to do with a Christian because, you know, those things are all taboo and you shouldn't do any of that. And, uh, so, yeah, rethinking pleasure um, outside of the taboos of, um, of movements that are so... Well, I think they're anti-pleasure in too many of their core tenets. Something that I think um, that you do also mention is is the way that um, I think you describe, I think you use the word ambivalent. So you describe that the virtue tradition has an ambivalent relationship to disability. What do you mean when you say that? Yeah. Um, look, there's, there, there's so many different ways to talk about that. Um, the virtue, what... What is the good life? Um, well, uh, in, in Aristotle, interestingly enough, 
um, the good life was achieved by exercise of virtues um, and succeed and ends up in success. Um, and the and for Aristotle, the good life was impossible for people who couldn't exercise or who that was thought that couldn't exercise certain virtues. And in Aristotle, that wasn't only people with disability, that was women. Um, so the good life was restricted to, you know, I, I think in modern terms, we'd say wealthy white men, um, people who could exercise virtues and power in certain ways. Um, and so the good life was definitely impossible for the sick and the disabled and for multiple ways, because it just looks it just when you look from the outside in, it seems obvious that the disabled life is not a good life. Um, but also because people with disability, you know, um, looked to looked it looked to be impossible for them to exercise um, virtues and succeed because yeah, so so people with disability are um, are the people that virtuous men are supposed to help out and support. So there's a sense in which um, the virtue tradition, and, and by the way, a lot of Christianity is about that. It's really interesting, again, a critique of Christianity, if I was to look at this book again, is it understands Christian virtue as to be, what's the good life? Well, it's about caring for the poor and looking after the outcast and all of that sounds noble and good, but notice how actually that's often about the virtuous person caring for the other, and that virtue often operates in ways that cement the power of the good virtuous person, often in ways that are surprisingly oppressive of the marginalised person who you're trying to help. Um, and so, um, disability theory, and I don't think, again, I do enough of this in the book. Um, I do some of it. Um, disability really critiques the sort of paternalism that is endemic, I think, in both um, virtue tradition and often in the way in which Christianity thinks about uh, saving others, whether that's, whether that's saving in terms of the soul or saving in terms of the justice message that's often out there. There's some interesting sort of parallels often between um, Christians on the right who are focused on saving the soul and Christians on the left who are focused on justice and saving the poor. Um, often they're less about listening to and being confronted by the perspective of others and empowering others than they are about they're about the people doing the saving in both cases often. So that's that's so good, Shane. And that's that's been one of the themes that comes has come through in our series to date is the challenge of when you when you see um whether it be in interpretations of scripture or in just um tacitly absorbed um practices within communities, whether church or otherwise, of seeing people with disability or disabled people as uh, recipients, objects. Um, of action rather yep. than having agency themselves and and you know like there's so much there's so much gift that is foregone when when that's the paradigm that you're operating under because when you're not paying attention to the surprising I mean just paying attention to humans generally and and, and the surprising um 
the way that they disrupt your assumptions, um, whether they have a disability or not. I think that that's a really, it's a really important, it's a really important um, critique and and one that if if we heed it, will actually improve <laughs> improve the way that we do life together. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I agree. And look, it's not that's not just a critique of Christianity, and that's right. I mean, that's a critique of the way in which society works as a whole. So. Um, I think the the primary message of disability is nothing about us without us. Um, it's a critique of ableism. Ableism is a word I don't think I touch on much again in that book. It's something I explored a lot more later. But I mean, you can see the parallel the, the parallels with racism. Um, but it's more than that. Ableism. It's about the way in which um, where most we frame our our life by assumptions about what is normal. Um, and have sort of implicit biases against what we judge to be abnormal. Um, we pity them. Um, and, and the way in which then that results in a sort of a, um, yeah, it, it results in us dismissing and disempowering people who are abnormal or different. Um, and so ableism, uh, disability theory is a, is a lot of critique of ableism. Um, and a reversing of those paternalistic assumptions, the realisation that people with disability um, aren't different, aren't less than, aren't incapable, um, aren't a burden, but in fact are the same as us. We're all, um, you know, limited. Uh, we all have different capacities. We all need support to be able to succeed. And when we think, when we just realise that actually people with disability they're, they're, they function differently to us, but they're remarkable. And provided they have the sort of supports that they need, not only can they or we flourish in ways that are surprising, you know, we imagine the disabled life to be a terrible life, but it turns out it's not. It can be a rich and beautiful and wonderful life, but they can also make a rich contribution to our flourishing in our world. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, disability... Um, changes the way you think or it changed the way I think about what it is to be a person, about what it is to live in the world. And that's why it's such a rich uh, area for reflection. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's certainly been um, my experience as well in that it, it's it's not just, and I think this is something that you say at the beginning of your book, like this disability isn't a fringe topic. It's at the heart of what it is to understand what it, um, you know, what it is to be human uh, and if you if you get something that doesn't apply for people with disability odds are that it actually doesn't have legs um yeah you know because right, like, that to me is at the essence of what we're talking about here i think in the book i i say we're born dependent on one another um we grow and learn to maximize our independence with the support of everyone around about us even at the height of our independence um, when we're when we think we're at our strongest actually we're completely reliant on everyone around about us for everything that goes on in the day most of which we don't acknowledge we're always at risk of an illness an injury a difficulty that could render us my case a quadriplegic and another person's case um, they could give birth to a person who has a disability another person might might experience a significant sickness. Another person might have, um, you know, quite socially debilitating mental illness. 
And then if we're lucky and live to old age, aging is itself a process of disablement. And so the stupid thing about society is we set our society up to function or, or to suit the sort of people when they're at their most independent, but actually most of life is not lived at that point. And uh, so there's things in disability thinking like universal design. If we designed the world not for um, not for the powerful people, but for people on the margins, it would actually suit work for us all in so many better ways um, for the whole of our life. So Shane, when we talk about um, the way that you've just spoken about the way that often society and our church communities misconstrue what flourishing is to the to the detriment of often the experience of people with disability. What does the virtue tradition say about flourishing and, and how what the relationship with flourishing and virtue is? Yeah, well, we've talked about, I guess, what flourishing is and we've mentioned virtue along the line, but I haven't said what that is. And it's an old word, actually, interestingly, that we don't use much anymore, is it? So, um, so virtues are habits of character that enable success, I think is probably a way of summarising it. Um, so there's something that we, I guess, learn from our parents and society. So what the virtues are that you can teach them in a school um, or your parents can sit down and talk to you about them, but you learn them more by uh, the way in which your parents or your society models to you. So they're the habits of the way you should live. And look, there's lists of virtues, um, you know, in the scriptures, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, but there, there is a list of virtues. And you think about them, courage, patience, kindness, um, Courage and, and virtues, the virtue tradition says, um, are lived in the mean or the middle. Um, and I think, by the way, it's one of the ways in which positive psychology gets virtues wrong. It just comes up with a list of virtues and doesn't think of vice. Um, so positive, um, so the virtue tradition sort of always thinks about virtues in the context of vice. And there is a vice of deficit or a vice of excess. So courage is... Um, is an interesting one. You can think about courage as the midpoint between the lack of courage, which is, you know, the failing to move through fear, or excess courage, which is rash action. And you think about how do you win a battle? Take courage. Well, you win a battle by not exercising either of those vices, by knowing when, by having the courage to move in the face of the sort of stagnancy that comes from fear. And but not moving rashly, just not launching into any battle. Um, and I think, and you know, that's true of patience as well. Patience is the virtue that um, is the midpoint between impatient um, or or waiting too long for something. Um, and so there, there is this. I love the virtue tradition. It's a really rich way of thinking about the habits of life. And I guess um, disability interact, there's a really interesting interaction between disability and the virtue tradition because um, I'd lived a certain way and certain habits had suited me um, prior to my disability, but I had a disability and I needed to think through new habits 
that would enable me to flourish. And I, I think particularly those habits were to do with dependency. Um, so prior to the injury, um, you know, you, you just sort of get along as a, I was 39 at the time, a 39-year-old independent male. And suddenly, um, you know, I'm stuck in bed and I can't turn on the light or brush my teeth or, um, you know, get myself dressed. I have a shower. Um, so I had to learn new habits to be able to make a go of this disabled life because if I didn't do so, um, then I'd be constantly frustrated and annoyed and angry. And, you know, there's so many ways in which I've, I've had to learn. Um, I, you know, let's just take patience. Um, I'm sitting here doing this podcast in bed. Um, and that's because I've managed to get a pressure sore on my bottom. Um, well, it's because of spinal cord injury, when you're seated, you don't move and you don't feel pain. Um, you can sort of kill, um, you can cause yourself damage on your bottom, which can take ages to heal. And so as a consequence of this, I'm probably going to spend the next week in bed. Um, now, I think prior to my injury, that would have killed me. Um, but I've had to learn to rest with the rhythms of the body um, and to exercise patience when I'm dealing with a medical system, which is slow and frustrating and better in Australia than in America. Mind you, that's a conversation for another day. But um, so I've had to develop uh, habits that I didn't have before. But of course, you can be too patient. Um, and if I don't sometimes, you know, say to the medical system, enough is enough, look after me now, then, you know, I could passively sit here waiting for help forever and not accomplish it. So, um, so dealing with dependency um, helped me to rethink or to reimagine the habits of my own life that enabled me to succeed. So, yeah, there you go. Long-winded way of talking about virtue. I certainly think that, um, as, as I mentioned to you um, via email and as we've spoken about um, on on this in this series before, I, I have a I have a physical disability and it's uh, I've had some um, quite severe pain that's flared up in the last few months, and it's been really interesting the way that um, you know I think that the story of the last gosh it's like eighteen years seventeen years now um, my relationship to independence dependency and the intimacy that that you you can have with other people when you have to ask for help and when you need help and you can't just, because I think that my default has always been, I'll just absorb. I can just, I can just barge through. I can just barrel on through. Um, and I think particularly this last kind of flare up since about October, November, um, I've had to pay more attention to my body and, res and respect it in a, in a different way. Um, and I think that that there's an interesting relationship to patience on the one hand, uh, frustration and grief on the other, but then yeah. also just kind of submitting yourself to the body you find yourself in, um, in, in ways that don't don't give oxygen to resentment. Um, I think that that's that's. I feel like I, I've had that a microcosm of that, and I think that over the course of your experience, you would you would have experienced that. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. 
Um, one of my friends, actually, it's one of the interlocutors in this book, Sarah, um, um, Sarah Chesterton. Uh, she's um, she's the she's the girl I talked to later in the book. Um, she had a child, and one of the things she said to me, and I'm, it might have been after this book, we were talking about dependency and having to have others help you. And I said, you know, how do you deal with the fact that you're always having to ask others for help and you feel like a burden? She goes, actually, I see that as my gift to them um, because generosity and giving is one of the virtues and one of the ways in which they can live the good life because they can look back and say, you know, that they helped me to be a mother and to flourish. So weirdly, we're so reluctant to ask for help. Um, and yet, weirdly, it's that um, that backwards and forwards being willing to receive, recognising that that actually isn't necessarily a burden, that you're giving people the opportunity there to give, and then creatively finding ways to give back. And um, I think that can what sometimes be hard for us. We feel like, you know, because pain can be so debilitating um, that, you know, we're constantly asking for help. So that's why there is that sense of burden. But I found Sarah's way of really challenging my sense that even that can be a gift, really. Just, yeah, really such a different way of thinking about dependency. And I think that experientially um, learning to receive from others in a way that isn't associated to shame in the sense that I think that I used to think of, I mean, it's such a deep-seated kind of subliminal thing to think of needing help and receiving help as being weakness and weakness being a bad thing. Yeah. Well, and the virtue tradition can be partly responsible for that, Steph. Yeah. Um, Tell me about that. Well, because the exercise of virtue um, is so the virtuous person in Aristotle is the one who gives rather than receives. So actually that's inherent, you know, that's actually explicit in the virtue tradition. Um, so virtues are the, it's the person who's breaking through, who is exercising courage rather than the person who's being saved um, or is the recipient of care. But I, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think I do say, I talk about this in the book, my relationship with my kids, being willing to receive help from my kids. Um, one of the challenges I had was I broke my injury playing with my kids. So the way in which I related to my teenage kids at the time was surfing and sport and and we were riding a push bike, um, jumping push bikes at a church youth facility and that's when I broke my neck. And how do I parent uh, now when I can't play in the same way with my kids? And I realised a few years down the track that they could do my care. Um, and so... You know, my care involves nudity and um, showering and dressing. And so I faced up to, all right, here's the shame of having my teenage kids, um, you know, deal with my body. Um, And then all of a sudden in doing so, we're spending the care time together, um, talking about life and its meanings and hardship. Um, They're learning that bodies are bodies and we should normalise the the weirdness and mess that comes with bodies. And, you know, all this time later, it's developed a rich and different relationship. That's still a loss. I don't want to say that that that's all good. I think disability 
you know, it's both terrible and wonderful, ugly and beautiful. Um, you don't want to sort of talk about it all as a term of gloss, but that's life too, isn't it? Um, so, yeah. And you, you talk about pain there and managing pain. Yeah. I'm sure you've learned a lot about disability, Steph, but you, you could live without pain still, couldn't you, even though it's teaching you a lot and you're learning a lot there. It's, pain's really hard to deal with. Yeah, I think that that's and that's an interesting thing that's come through in in a bunch of the conversations we've had um, with people, um, particularly when it comes to what your hope is for yourself in the future. And on the one hand, you want to correct the the kind of the ablest undercurrents that um, sit below a lot of the way that we organise our common life, in saying that you know there are differences in disability that. That shouldn't be, you know, they're not just maladies to be corrected. There are differences yep. to be embraced. Yes. But when, <laughs> I feel like when pain comes into the mix, it, in my, in one of the things I've been grappling with is, is how, how that modifies the conversation, particularly if, you know, for me in terms of my faith and one of the conversations that we've had, you know, for example, with Amy Kenny recently, Dr. Kenny, um, was around, what is the hope you have for what is the what is the hope for the new creation? Do you hope that you have a body that um, that doesn't experience pain, or you know, do you hope that you have a body that isn't disabled? And that conversation is really fraught. <laughs> I wondered if yep. if you what 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 kind of what are some thoughts that you would add into that conversation, Shane? Yeah, look, um, I, and I'm not thinking about that conversation in terms of heaven or hell or um, because I think it's actually very this-worldly. Um, you know, what do I hope for my children or what do I hope for my future? Um, and, you know, I, we, we have kids and we, um, we might hope that they don't have a genetic disability or that they don't break their back. And, and I still hope for that for them. I hope, you know... I, Living with spinal cord injury is hard, and I hope my kids don't go for a push bike ride tomorrow and uh, and break their back. Uh, I, it might be worth just briefly commenting. Have you talked in the podcast before about the social model of disability? Yeah. So, um, so the social model of disability tends to set the medical and the social model against one another. I, I think that maybe in its original thinking it does, um, and one of the sort of more modern critiques or at least nuances of that social model is to recognise that we are embodied, um, that disability isn't just a social problem, but it's, uh, it is an embodied problem. And so, you know, we can embrace and celebrate disability while also wanting to maximise our physical well-being and minimise our pain and uh, and maximise our psychological well-being. Um, I mean, I, I've got a real interest, um, you know, in uh, MAD studies, which is sort of uh, I don't know if that's a term with which you're familiar. Um, it's it's a it's sort of a an outreach from disability with mental illness, which is celebrating MAD pride, um, you know, pride in mental illness, um, and embracing our brains for all of their quirky weirdness and recognizing even um you know the 
the more bizarre things that our brain might do or the very different things that our brain might do are just part of who we are. We can be proud of them. But that doesn't mean just because you can eliminate the shame that is too often associated with mental illness, that it's therefore wrong to take um, medicine that might help you out or that might maximise um, your functioning of, of your brain. So there's a really nuanced and rich conversation. And I, and I do love that um, ambiguity that comes with studying disability. And I think that is in the best theology as well, isn't it? Um, that, uh, yeah, that theology and disability are about both the cross, but about joy in the midst of the cross or, or you know, the cross and the resurrection go together, don't they? Um, it's about this death, but this fullness of life and that wonderful sort of paradox that's at the essence of Christian theology is also, I think, there in thinking about disability. So, yeah, so I want my kids to live as well as they can, but then be able to flourish in whatever hardship comes their way, both from the sheer luck or the choices of life. Yeah, and I think that that that, that notion of resilience and um, the, the kind of the bounce back, um, you know, you can have uh, when you have a traumatic event, you know, in, in your case, your accident, you know, there are different tools at different points in our journey that become important resources that we can draw on. Um, and I think yeah. that that's, I think that that's evident in your book that there are different points at which different parts of the virtue tradition become helpful, helpful tools in a toolkit that may serve you well at one point, but not at another. Um, yeah, look, I completely agree. And look, if I started by saying I'm critical of the book, I actually still love the book. I think it's rich in many ways. There'd, there's, there'd be things I'd nuance, but I use it in multiple ways. Some friends of mine, um, a pain specialist actually, and um, recently developed a program working with people with spinal cord injury. It's called the Engage Program. It's now run by Spinal Cord Injuries Australia. Um, and it really is grounded in the virtue tradition. And it's thinking about ways in which, thinking about what the good life is. You know, what are the components of the good life? Um, what are the virtues we need to succeed in it? And, you know, what are the components of the good life? That's really interesting. And um, it is relationships. It's finding meaning. Um, and living for some sense of meaning. Now, for some, that might be um, a deep sense of the Christian faith, living for God. For others, that um, that meaning might be found um, in their children, in their relationships, in their community, in the work. So there's lots of different ways. Um, looking for or, or finding beauty. Um, and I think spirituality and Christianity, hopefully, is about that as well. Um, so living for these deeper sense of purpose. And I think when you go through crisis and trauma, um, you, it can cause you to lose sight, yeah, of all of these, the deeper sense of meaning and purpose and what's beautiful. Um, you know, a spinal cord injury can disrupt your relationships, your work, um, and it can be hard to regain meaning in the, in the light of that. And, so much of life is actually about that, isn't it? I think if you think about, um, you know, our life often will will have a relationship and for whatever reason will um, have a divorce. Um, and suddenly the crisis that comes from divorce is about, or in this new situation, um, 
how do I reimagine meaning, purpose, relationships? And how do I look at my life and the habits of character that might have damaged my past relationships and that I need to rethink or rework on myself so that my next relationship or relationships that I'm in are healthy and I don't repeat the same mistakes. So you think about how the virtue tradition and the tools that it gives you um, can help build resilience. I, I think that's the, the key word because life is hard, man. And um, and so um, the virtue tradition is a rich way of thinking about what it takes to live a resilient life um, with others. I know you spend uh, quite a bit of time um, detailing this in your book, but at a relatively high level, how would you describe the way that Christian theology has interpreted and interacted with the virtue tradition, um, both at the time of Aquinas and also subsequently? Um, well, I think um, I think Aquinas, who's a really rich interpreter of tradition. Um, but maybe Aquinas and, and subsequently, I think, ends up focusing or giving too much attention to the eschatological, to this end goal. Um, and so I don't think gives enough attention to the here and now, um, which I guess resonates back with my focus before about pleasure. Um, so a lack of attention to pleasure. Um, yeah, it's why I'm not that interested in eschatology. I'm quite ambivalent about, you know, our bodies after death. I don't think we actually can know and I'm not that interested in that topic at all. That's not to say other, I can, you know, I'm, I'm happy to find others who might find interesting and value in it, but I don't care very much about what the nature of heaven might be like. I don't believe in hell. Um, so, yeah, um, so for me, um, that reflection on the here and now um, and how to live, live well in the here and now, I think is probably my biggest critique of Christianity because I think this focus on heaven and hell then um, also becomes a means of controlling others. And I think the Christian tradition has used um, the future um, and virtue as a means for controlling the way others behave. And so I think the virtue tradition is at its richest when you take it on yourself and think about your own flourishing. And I think it's at its most dangerous and damaging when others use it to tell you how you should, you know, what meaning you should find, what virtues you should exercise, and the ways in which um, you should suppress um, certain um, certain actions and habits for some future goal or for some, you know, for some function that the church tells you is important. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you can just see the way in which this has caused, um, you know, the horror that is contemporary Christianity, um, whether that's, um, you know, I think in Catholicism, the way in which they frame the life of the priest is, the obvious example of that. So they're living for, for God, um, exercising virtue, but what they're actually doing is developing a priesthood where um, 
you know, where celibacy is at the core of it. So it's resulted in really distorted attitudes to the pleasure of sex and sexuality um, and to life in the here and now. And, the, and where we see the consequences of that repression for some future goal leads to all sort of, um, well, horrors. And I think it's done that in the Catholic Church's um, um, sexual abuse crisis and, uh, and, and yeah, the ways in which it then talks about virtue and masculinity and, and, uh, and I think that's true of Catholicism, um, but true of evangelicalism as well. Shane, it's now 12, 13 years since um, your life took a dramatic turn. What would you say are the key virtues that you found have helped you flourish when you've sought to cultivate them? In, in your in your in your new in the in the changes that your body has undergone. Yeah. Look, I, I think I might even just bounce out of the last chapter of this book. The I think it's disability grace and the virtue of letting go of control, which is a is a chapter that I periodically reread and still really love. Um, uh, and I think it's in part because um, I don't want to list. I, you know, I, I don't think we should say list. These are the virtues that are the ones that are most important um, and that you should all adopt. So I wouldn't want to sort of give a list of virtues and tell people what they should do with them. But for me, um, I think, you know, some of the ones that have been really important is thinking through pride and humility, um, for example, and uh, thinking about humility. And we, we tend to think of them as polar opposites, by the way, and I don't think they should be or are. Um, humility is something we don't want to experience or that we experience in oppressive ways, I think, in Christianity. So reflecting on humility has been significant. You know, as I think you talked about before, the humility of the dependency that comes from, you know, so much of disability is about shame. Um, you know, but I've had to sort of deal with the fact that people are dealing with my naked body and my extra um, you know, and I can be I can be out and about, and a catheter will block up, and I'll have to ask one of my work colleagues to stick their hands down my pants and unblock my catheter. And you know, there's so much of life that is sort of humiliating, um, and yet, so thinking through what it means to live in bodies that we're so used to um, experiencing shame about, and the virtue of humility is significant because it's about me understanding that I'm little and that I'm small and that, you know, I don't need to be ashamed um, with um, with the smallness of my body, but also then thinking about, yeah, the, the, the need for not only people with disability to exercise humility, which will just sort of be automatic, we'll be confronted with it, but what do powerful people do with humility? The medical profession, which is so sure it's right, needs to listen to the expertise of people with disability. The church, which is used to helping, we talked about this before, um, you know, people on the margins needs to exercise the humility of realising that actually there's a lot of insight that comes from people with disability or from people who've experienced homelessness or people in poverty. Um, so reframing humility. But pride, for example, is often something that um, Christianity sees as a negative. You know, in fact, often people will link pride to original sin. 
um, which is sort of horrifying because um, often then that that notion of pride generates shame. Um, so how do I learn to be proud? And I think disability has taught me that um, we can be proud um, of the, this, this thing that often has so much a shame attached to it. And by the way, I think this is one of the ways in which disability um, needs to align itself with feminism and um, LGBTQ pride. Uh, so you think about the pride movement. At the moment, we're recording this interview in Australia where World Pride Month is on. Um, and, you know, again, um, uh, uh, queer people, and I have a trans uh, daughter now, um, queer people have experienced so much shame for their action because society says that what they do and who they are is shameful. Um, and so queer, um, queer, and the, the result of that is social exclusion in so many ways, whether that is queer people excluded from the church, from leadership in, in church or involvement in church, um, whether that's disabled people excluded from life in the church, but to have pride in who we are. And then pride is a collective movement, isn't it? It's something that we have together. We have pride in the way people have stood up and said, you know, our forebears have stood up and said, no, it's okay to be gay. Um, it's okay to um, be trans and we can live our true authentic identity. It's okay to be disabled. I'm proud of being a quadriplegic um, and the way in which we, in which that's a collective action. Um, so yeah, humility, pride, forgiveness, there's so many other ways in which over the last 12 years or 13 years, whatever it is, disability has given me the opportunity to think about how I thought about what a virtuous life was and to think differently about that in the present so well shane thank you so much for your time and for joining us and just really appreciate this conversation on what is the good life and and happiness and pleasure and thinking about the role of virtues in, in all of that and and the perspective that that disability in particular can provide in, in this way i just i just find it to be astounding and just really appreciate what you shared thank you john it's been um a real pleasure i I think you might have hinted I've and we had, haven't got into it. I've had a few bad experiences with Christianity. It's made me a little suspicious mm. of uh, Christianity, to be honest. Um, so this conversation has been very good for me as well, mm. um, reminding me about the riches in uh, yeah in, in faith and in conversation uh, with people of faith. So thank you for the conversation. Mm.